0: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
1: The federal government has announced an inquiry into religious educational institutions and anti-discrimination laws. It'll be run by the Australian Law Reform Commission. The federal attorney general, Mark Dreyfus, recently announced that on the line we have Brian Gregg from Just Equal. Brian, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you and hello, Victoria.
1: Brian, let's start with the terms of reference. What can you tell us?
2: Well, the terms of reference are interesting, James, in that they do seem to... They they echo what Albanese said in February. So let's quickly go back to that. In February, when Labor was in opposition and we were just a few months out from the election, Mr Albanese, as opposition leader, issued a statement which said the following, right? So a future Labor government will, one, prevent discrimination against people of faith, two, act to protect all students from discrimination on any grounds, And three, and this is the really interesting one, we have to listen to the words here carefully, three, protect teachers from discrimination at work whilst maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of faith in the selection of staff. That raises, I think, a conundrum. It's it's those things don't easily balance, and it raises the question, well, hang on then. If religious schools are allowed to preference people of faith, Does that mean that they could say that homosexuality and transgender status and same-sex relationships are against their faith and therefore they can refuse to hire people who are gender diverse or lesbian or gay? And that's the question. And in a worrying sign, it looks like that's kind of the path Labour is going down. And it looks like they've handballed this issue to the Law Reform Commission, the Australian Law Reform Commission, to try and come up with some solution which deals with that. But at the end of the day, you can't. It's one or the other.
1: Yeah, it does sound like religious cherry-picking.
2: It is. And it, the interesting thing is that if, if for example, and we don't, this is, I'm not saying this is what will happen, but if, for example... The end result of this is that Labor says, "Okay, we're going to introduce a federal law which protects teachers at work. So that means existing teachers, those already employed. So if there are LGBT teachers already employed, they will be protected. But we're going to put up the fence, we're going to put up the wall to any future LGBT teachers coming in so that faith schools, publicly funded faith schools, can say, look, we do have a couple of gay teachers on staff. We we can't get rid of them. We're not going to. But when they leave or retire or move on, we won't replace them uh, because we can now prevent them at the recruitment process, the application process. So the end result of that will just be a slow purge of all LGBT teachers from publicly funded faith schools. And I think that's deeply worrying. But the other thing in relation to that is that if that, if capital I, capital F, if that is what Labor, Federal Labor is going to do then they come, up, they come in conflict with existing laws in the state of Tasmania, existing laws in the state of Victoria, and proposed laws in my home state of WA. So that raises the question, are we going to have some kind of federal override of three existing state laws? I think that's highly unlikely. So it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of response the, the Australian Law Reform Commission can come up with.
1: It sounds like Mark Dreyfus is looking for some kind of, you know, legal Houdini act. Uh, and that's why he's referred it to the Australian Law Reform Commission to run it as opposed to a Senate inquiry.
2: Oh, look, Labor frequently refers to law reform commissions, both at a state and federal level, when it wants to kind of distance itself from difficult proposals and then when the proposals come out they say oh look this is what's been proposed Um, so we should do this or perhaps we shouldn't do that. It's not something they like to do internally and you see that in the language from the press release that the attorney put out the other day where he said that um, uh, the the press release he put out with the terms of reference specified consultation with a range of groups and they included targeted consultation with religious organisations the education sector unions, legal experts, and other civil society representatives. And that last bit really catches my eye. Other civil society representatives. Why can't Labor just come out and say LGBT groups, Because that's what we're talking about. And my concern is that this is federal Labor, the government being shy, being coy, and not prepared to be front-footed on this issue and actually state what the discrimination is and what needs to be addressed.
1: It is a very strange way of putting it, isn't it? Other civil society representatives, I suppose they're keeping the door open for really any group to be consulted, including perhaps um, some groups that may have uh, an agenda that's contrary to the LGBTIQ community's agenda. But it is a very odd way to put it.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean... Let's be clear about this. The, there are there is a range of discrimination which faith schools can and do engage in. So uh, they include things like discriminating against people in de facto relationships or single mothers, for example, um, uh, and of course uh, lesbian, gay, and trans teachers and students. But it is overwhelmingly the latter. It's 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 us. It's our community. It's it's our cohort, which overwhelmingly is the victim most often of this discrimination and persecution. And the fact that Labor, the, the government, is tiptoeing around this, they're saying they're having an inquiry into discrimination schools, they're actually saying what the fundamental problem is, is for me just a little unnerving, because that suggests that they're trying to flag to religious conservatives that they're still on their side. That, you know, by not naming and shaming the problem... Um, it draws attention to the fact that Labor is still, it would seem, uncomfortable with this issue and uncertain of how to address it. Uh, and my, I, I come increasingly to the view, as I think more and more on this issue, that we should just remove all religious extensions, period. There's no need for them. Uh, Tasmania did that 25 years ago. So we already have the state example of that happening. And, and we're going through this torturous process of, of trying to you know, um, count the number of angels on a pinhead, as it were, to try and work out what's going on. Just stop it. I mean, these are publicly funded organisations, publicly funded institutions, and I think there is a community expectation that they should adhere to basic human rights and anti-discrimination provisions. And that means no discrimination, period. Don't pick on the kids don't pick on the teachers and don't stop them from applying for jobs and and the religious schools will say but this is about freedom this is about freedom of religion to which i would say well in that case then you're not entitled to public funding if you want to do this privately if you want to establish a private school with your church funds and raising corporate monies and raising fees from the kids go ahead do whatever you like discriminate in any way you like but be a completely totally private organization but Don't stick your hand so deeply into the public purse taking hundreds of millions of dollars from the taxpayers and then say you want to be excluded from anti-discrimination laws. I don't think the Australian voters support that at all.
1: Brian, do you think they're not using the words, the letters LGBTIQ because they don't want the debate to be framed around that because they don't want it to be, you know, another chapter of uh, God versus the gays?
2: I do, but I I come from a a slightly different perspective. I think your observation is right. But but what I think is really happening here is that, remember, this this inquiry is, I believe, a precursor. This is setting up the stage for what comes next, and that's Labor's Religious Discrimination Bill. That's not dead. Let's not forget that. Labor went into the last election stating very clearly that they supported a Religious Discrimination Bill. They didn't support the precise one that Morrison, the former PM, put up. But remember, they voted for chunks of it in February of this year, including sections that they said that they would oppose. They betrayed our community when they said they wouldn't override, they wouldn't support any laws that overrode existing protections. And then they did exactly that. Um, but at the end of the day, that bill... Uh, was withdrawn by Morrison when it became clear that it wouldn't pass the Senate because of the Liberal moderates and the whole thing fell over. And the Australian Christian lobby put pressure on the opposition, now in government, and said, well, what are you going to do if you're in government? And Albanese said, we will introduce a religious discrimination bill. So they are still dedicated to doing that, but they need to sort out this issue of religious schools and the extent to which they should be allowed or not discriminate against teachers and students. So this is setting the groundwork for that.
1: So it really is part of a long game strategy, isn't it, Brian? And if that's the case, and it makes perfect sense what you're saying, this could be the first of several inquiries. uh,
2: Well, I don't know about that, but my my instinct is that this inquiry will not produce anything satisfactory, because it can't. You you either say to religious organisations, look, you, you cannot discriminate against lgbt teachers in your recruitment and employment process processes you just can't you can't discriminate against people on the grounds of race or disability or sex um and you can't do it on the grounds of of sexuality or gender identity you just can't period that's it or you say to religious schools okay we will give you a special exemption so that you can but either way labor is going to uh upset annoy and anger a, a different base a different section um, the only state, as I say, which has satisfactorily resolved this issue is Tasmania. A quarter of a century ago, where they introduced a law that said, no, you cannot discriminate against people at the recruitment and employment process on the grounds of you know, uh, sexuality and gender identity. You can only do it on the basis of religion. So schools can uh, filter out people on the basis of their religion but and it's very clear there's a caveat in the tasmanian law that says but you cannot use religion as an excuse or a a cover to discriminate against lgbti people so brian the reality
1: is they could just legislate without this inquiry couldn't they they could quite easily come up with legislation
2: absolutely very very simple and as i say it's it's it gets complicated when the, feds, the federal government is looking at a, a, a national law to deal with this when we already have two state-based laws that deal with it and a third coming down the pipeline. Um, and you can probably include Queensland in that as well. I mean, the law up there is is a little clunky. It could be clear it's a little clunky, but it's been effective in stopping City Point uh, School in Brisbane in, in, in their attack, twofold attack on students there. And, and the City Point example is, is precisely what we're looking at here because you remember that more recently what they've done is they tried to get students and, I think, parents to sign a document saying that they prescribed to the school's values And those values included not recognising same-sex relationships and not recognising the existence of trans people, saying that God made man and woman and and nothing in between. Um, And then the school was trying to say, oh, we're not discriminating against gay, lesbian, trans people. We're just getting people, students and teachers, to adhere to the school's values. So they were looking for a loophole. And that is what I, I fear is embedded in the terms of reference that are now being looked at by the uh, no, the Australian Law Reform Commission.
1: Brian, will this issue be resolved before the next election?
2: No, I don't believe it will. Uh, I believe the Law Reform Commission will come up with because it has no choice will come up with a fairly clunky response saying well you could do this or you could do that or and oh by the way it does get tripped up a bit with what's happening around the states and i think labor is just kicking this this tricky issue down the road in the same way that they did with marriage equality for so many years until it was crunch time they can't avoid this um you, you either allow Publicly funded religious schools special legal exemptions to discriminate against LGBT people, or you don't. That's it. There's no, um, there's no nuance here, Um, and it's not enough simply for Labor to say we will protect those LGBT uh, teachers at work, those currently employed. They can't be sacked or discriminated against or dismissed. We will protect them, but we will throw up the shutters and not allow, and, and, and rather allow publicly funded faith schools to employ anymore. I don't think that sends the right message, and I don't think the Australian electorate would tolerate that.
1: So, Brian, it really is Groundhog Day, greatest hits and memories, kicking the can down the road. How many times have we been down this path on LGBTIQ law reform? Look, it's a rhetorical question, but, gee, it's a familiar pattern. It
2: is, and, of course, what so much of... One of the factors here we we need to be cognizant of is that Mr Albanese is, of course, from Sydney. I think he's a very Sydney-centric person, a very New South Welsh person in terms of his political thinking. Uh, Doesn't, in my view, necessarily have a broad um, Australia-wide view on these issues. And, of course, the politics of this in Sydney is very different to everywhere else because Sydney is the most conservative state and it has the largest number of electorates that voted no to marriage equality in 2017. Um, and all of those seats are just sort of on the outer urban areas around Sydney in a big ring around Sydney. Um, and they're dominated by multi-faith, multicultural communica- uh, communities. And Labor is always trying to maintain those seats and or win those seats. And the politics of that plays out into LGBT issues nationally. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, as I say, your state of Victoria has addressed this issue. Tasmania has addressed this issue. Queensland has largely addressed this issue. And Western Australia plans to do it within the next year. Uh, the attorney, Our state attorney... Uh, Mr. Quigley is already on record as saying that this is the path he wants to go down. He has effectively said we want to copy or or echo what they've done in Victoria. So why is federal labour struggling with this? Well, the answer to that comes back to the fact that federal labour is more conservative than state-based labour. And so much of its politic and its strategic policy comes out of Sydney.
1: Brian Gregg from Just Equal, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
2: Pleasure. Thanks,
1: James. In New South Wales, the Special Commission of Inquiry into Gay and Transgender Hate Crimes began. And on the line, I have historian, activist, author and uh, original Mardi Gras protester, Gary Watherspoon. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Uh, let's start with the uh, terms of reference for this inquiry. Uh, as a historian and also as an activist, what jumps out to you?
3: Uh, look, I'm really impressed by the uh, focus of, of the inquiry. Um, they are going to look at those cases which the police sort of glossed over. And uh, there's a whole range of them. I think there must be nearly 80 or so cases. They've been through enormous amounts of uh, records and things, eliminating those like deaths of kids or deaths in in speedboats and things like that, looking very much at suspect cases which could be on gay beats or around the gay ghetto area in Oxford Street. So they're, they're narrowed down and they've got the powers to call witnesses, and so I expect there'll be Several police officers will get a very good grilling
1: Yes indeed, it's looking at 88 cases in particular from 1970 to 2010 that remain unsolved Um, and there does seem to be uh, some dispersion surrounding the police, especially as there was so much ingrained homophobia within the New South Wales police force. Of course you saw that in the 70s as an activist and that was one of the reasons why you were protesting uh, at the original Mardi Gras. Um, You must feel like in some ways that protest has yet again been vindicated.
3: (laughs) Yes, 30 years later or 40 years later it is, yes. But it is a vindication and it's been a very slow process and it's really been like pulling teeth from the police. Like a lot of institutions, they're really reluctant to acknowledge their past abysmal behaviour and so this will actually, in a sense, be a good... uh, putting a a searchlight on police behaviour in the past. And hopefully, you know, they'll eventually acknowledge that this was a time in which they did represent some terrible, terrible aspects of how to deal with (laughs) rate-paying citizens.
1: Of course this inquiry it's you know it's focusing on on numerous decades starting in the in the 1970s you were an activist in the 1970s as i said you protested at that original Mardi Gras in 78 can you tell us what life was like for Sydney's gay and trans and lesbian and queer communities as we now know it um you know what was it like
3: Well look um we we really the first gay organisation of with Amp set up here in Sydney. So from the 1970s, so 1971, there was a small group of activists. And, you know, gradually over time, we uh, took to the streets and things like that. So there was very gradually over the 70s a clear presence of gay activism on the streets of Sydney, gradually growing. And so I think that also paved the way for the point where in 1978 when the police, as they did, you know, tried to dis, uh, disband what was a legal march, we had a permit, when they tried to disband it, why people were so intense and thought, well, you just can't do that to us. But they really had been utterly, utterly unsympathetic to uh, the, the gay and lesbian and queer community in any way. I mean, in, in many ways, it was Police Commissioner Delaney in the late 1950s who said, Communism and Australia are the
1: greatest menaces facing Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So linking, linking, you know, political activism to communism and human rights and homosexuality and saying they're a great evil. I mean, we've come a a long way, as this special commission of inquiry shows. But it sounds like it was horrendous in the 70s for the community where there was, you know, great fear from the broader society of, you know, being stigmatised, but also fear of violence from police.
3: Uh, Yes, look, I think once the uh, gay lib started, early 1970s, there was a much greater sense, a much greater public awareness that there were these people called homosexuals and they were out there creating political mayhem in some places and things like that. So once you become identified as a certain group, there are those who are going to hate you and want to react against you. So I think homophobia, um, certainly uh, as overt as it was from the 1970s, is partly a reaction to the development of gay activism itself.
1: Absolutely. Of course, the Special Commission of Inquiry also covers the 1980s. That was an incredibly difficult time for the community, wasn't it? Because, you know, there's, there had been some advances made after that first uh, Mardi Gras in 1978. In the 80s, you know, um, the community was mobilising. It wasn't until 1984, of course, that homosexuality was decriminalised in New South Wales, but in the early 1980s, HIV-AIDS began and that created even more stigma and led to, I think, some of the violence that this special commission is investigating.
3: Yes, look, um, AIDS certainly had what you might call a detrimental effect in that Suddenly, a lot of the uh, many parts of the community, people like Fred Nile, professors of politics and things like that, were saying this is what, you know, degeneracy and uh, leads to. We are now infecting all of society. So there was a a level of what you might call very public uh, condemnation of gays uh, until it was really very clearly established this is a public health issue, not a morality issue. But the one benefit we did have, the activism from 1978 to 1984 to get law reform here in in New South Wales, very quickly, once we knew we had law reform, we were able to switch much of that activism straight over to working for HIV-AIDS issues.
1: Did you find that, you know, even though decriminalisation had happened, um, that because of the decades and decades of discrimination and stigma that took so long for societal attitudes to change and that has contributed to the violence that this Special Commission of Inquiry is looking into?
3: Yes, look, um, even though the law changes, Attitudes don't instantly change in either the community or the police. It takes a generation or so for this to actually occur. And up here we did have a uh, police liaison officers working. There were programs in, in, introduced into police training programs about how to deal with minorities, not only the gay minorities, but racial and ethnic and cultural minorities. So there were programs and gradually, change has taken place. But institutions, I mean, even now, um, there is still a great deal of reluctance amongst the older police to acknowledge that this is what the new world should be about.
1: To what extent do you think governments contributed to, to the kind of you know, violence that the community has, has experienced by kind of condoning homophobia? As Nicholas Parkhill, the CEO of ACON, said, they had a very high tolerance for homophobia.
3: Well, I mean, we only have to look in the past year. Um, The the elections uh, up here, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was supporting a very transphobic uh, candidate in the election in North Sydney area. Um, In state parliament here, Mark Latham introduced a very anti-trans bill. So, yes, governments haven't necessarily improved all that dramatically at all in certain areas. And the other thing about that is, even um, the institutions of society do take time themselves to change. The younger generation of people coming through now are much more aware that we're just like them, except that we like someone of our same sex for <laughs> recreation.
1: Gary, you're in the thick of the community. You live in, you live in Darlinghurst. Uh, what's the impact on the community that you're observing as a result of the hearings that began this week, you know, into, into uh, trans and gay hate crimes, unsolved cases?
3: Look, there's a lot of interest, a lot of street chatter. You go into the bars and things and people are talking about it. But I'm not sure once you get outside the, uh, what we might call the gay ghetto area, how much, certainly if you go to Western Sydney, and I'm not sure if this is like Western Melbourne and uh, the, the outer suburbs, whether there is even much awareness of how important this is or whether they're really interested in it.
1: Of course, you have been involved in the Bondi Memorial. Tell us about that project.
3: Uh, look, that, that's a very good example of um, a local council, a local government, acknowledging that something really terrible had happened in the past under their purview, and so they. Uh, I, this was an initiative, I think, from initially from Acon, but certainly Bondi, the Waverley Council, took it on. And the the, the memorial area is really very understated, but very nice. Little plaques scattered on this little rising bit of. Not imitation sandstone, but rock much the same colour as the rocks on where the beat was.
1: And of course, the memorial is for people who who were found to be have you know had violence committed against them, or indeed had died.
3: Yes, very much so. It commemorates those who either lost their lives. Or experiencing very extreme violence, and it was certainly a case here that these these there's so many cases here, the police were utterly indifferent about.
1: How do you think this special commission of inquiry is impacting on the police? What kind of you know responses are you hearing from the police?
3: Well, look, uh, the commission themselves—they uh, subpoena uh, documents from the police. The police are giving them those documents and things, and certainly in uh, Peter Peter Gray's uh, uh, opening introduction, he highlighted that what what this does indicate was how little um, action the police took on some of these cases when it was clear that if, say, you've got five murders or five dead bodies in a matter of two years in the one place, why would you just presume it's accidents when it's a known gay beat? So that's one of the things that I think is really coming out from this inquiry.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it must be kind of, you know, bringing out a lot of grief and loss for people and a lot of emotion for activists like yourself that remember those high-profile cases, that remember some of the lower-profile cases as well, but were kind of on the front line, you know, of activism during these dark days.
3: Look, we had, I I can remember uh, the front page of one of the Star Observers, uh, here at the time, the headline was It is our blood running in the street. It's the blood of our brothers and sisters. And it, this was very much how it, it, it struck us at the time. And parts of our community were just being targeted and there was no real recourse.
1: What kind of outcomes do you think the community would like to seek as a, or see as a consequence of this special inquiry?
3: Ah, well, look... It, I think South Africa and the, they had a, a, a truth and justice, in pursuit of truth and justice, very like the ACON report. So hopefully an enormous amount of uh, material will come out. The police will acknowledge that there, there were mistakes, is a polite way of putting it, that there were things done in the past that should not have been done, things that should, should have been dealt with differently. And hopefully it will indicate that they are willing to move on and that those attitudes are no longer an inherent part of that institution. And I think all Australia is a multicultural society, and even though we're only one element, one minimal part of the multicultural, I think it will be a lesson that, all right, in a multicultural society, the world can move on and those who are there to nominally protect us will be protecting us rather than inflicting violence on it. And I think this is very true in case for Indigenous uh, uh, Australians.
1: Absolutely. Of course, the uh, inquiry is getting heaps of international media attention. It's kind of the first of its kind in the world, isn't it? And hopefully it will set an example so that other countries follow suit.
3: Yes, look, I I wasn't aware, but as uh, Peter Gray actually said, yes, it is the first. And I think it actually will be a very interesting... um, precedent for many other countries. I'm sure Peter Tatchell over in London would be very interested in what's going on here in Australia. He's an Australian or he was an Australian himself. And I'm sure in uh, parts of America, in San Francisco and New York, they would also be very interested in a process like this being set up and where it leads to
1: of course, you are a very well-regarded author. You've written numerous books, and one of them was Gay Sydney, A History. Tell us a little bit about that book.
3: Well, look, it was, as a historian, you don't often get the opportunity of finding a whole new field that no one's ever been there before. You don't, you're not really quibbling with someone else about what they said. So it was wonderful to actually think, here's all this things. So far, all we used used to get was newspaper reports, criminal reports and things like that. But we started, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s in recording, getting oral histories from a whole range of older gay men about how they had grown up, what their lives were like, what their social lives were like. So we started to, to be able to develop a real picture that there was an alternative life going on below the surface once you start looking, you know where to go. And so, we, we, I mean, tapping right back into um, 1890s when there was a newspaper in, published in Sydney about the Oscar Wildes of Sydney, people who went by the names of effeminate, names of effeminate actresses up and down the street, who went to Turkish steam bars, who uh, had a haunt in a, a pub in uh, Burke Street, just off Oxford Street. So once you start to look... You see so many little connections leading you here and there. So it became a very interesting uh, process for me to research this. And once you look into the theatrical world, I mean, some of the shows that were put on in the 1930s, they are amazing. A, a, a comedian going on the set stage singing, I'm a queen, I'm a queen, look at me now. So this sort of thing, it's there. But once you, you've got to start digging. And once you start digging, did you do find it?
1: Wow, so you really uncovered some very flamboyant parts of Sydney's gay history, as well as the bleak stuff. There was the really colourful, kind of, you know, trailblazing, vibrant cultural stuff that's kind of been forgotten, and you unearthed it.
3: Well, look, and and clearly, I mean, much of social life before, say, the 1960s, the sexual revolution, before all that, it was mainly friendship networks, how our communities lived their lives, uh, so they never felt isolated. In the 60s, up here in Sydney, a lot of clubs developed, the Polly's, uh, Carrigals, uh, and others. And so that was like friendship institutionalised. So that was also another thing that was growing behind the, behind the the public facade at the time. So there has been constantly, since World War II, this gradual bubbling away. And certainly it came out in the 1970s. It had its, uh, you know... Back uh, stepping back in the 80s, 1980s. The pr- pressure was on Over in the 1990s. We got law reform. We got uh, same-sex marriage eventually. But there's still issues. The trans issue now is very much like the gay and lesbian issue was 50 years ago.
1: Absolutely. Now, Gary, you mentioned World War Two. What were some of the stories and anecdotes you unearthed from Sydney in World War Two, gay Sydney?
3: Well, look... <laughs> Everyone likes a man in uniform. <laughs> Some of the, the, the stories were very, very interesting. Um, guys who met each other either in training camps and have been together ever since, they, guys who formed relationships when they were out in the battlefield and things like that. But the other very, I think, slightly amusing thing was that during the war they developed these entertainment troops to go around to entertain the troops in in the battlefields and things like that. And many of the troops, because they couldn't take women there, they had uh, cross-dressing what we might call drag queens. And so many of the guys who would have been arrested for dressing up as they did prior to the war were paid money to go and do it in the war time for the soldiers. And some of them even got asked for dates after their show when they're out on the, (laughs) the front lines.
1: Wow. And then, of course, it went back in the other direction like a rubber band, didn't it, and became very repressive in the 1950s.
3: Yes. That was partly the Cold War, and certainly, uh, partly, Britain had a lot of homosexual scandals. And the problem here, of course, is if you criminalise something, then those people who are criminalised are liable for blackmail. And so this happened to the Vassal case, uh, the Burgess and McLean cases in Britain. So I think people were very much aware that a criminal element, as we were then, was subject to blackmail or coercion. And so we were seen as a potential threat to, you know, <laughs> the good of Australia.
1: Gary, um, in, in Sydney's Gay History, in the book that you actually uh, actually wrote, what's your favourite era that you uncovered and Why?
4: <laughs>
3: I'm still enjoying it, James. <laughs> My favourite era, probably, probably the seventies, oh, eighties. Despite AIDS, I mean, the late seventies were really just party, 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 party. The eighties, you did have AIDS, but you've got a real sense of the community coming together creating things like Community Support Network, the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation. They've so got a real sense of the community rallying about and looking after those of us who weren't able to be, look after themselves. But both those eras were. I mean, it's gone downhill now. Uh, Oxford Street became so famous, so trendy. rents went up. Uh, a lot of the shops just simply had to close. They couldn't um, keep the rents going.
1: And, of course, the Internet's had a huge impact as well. So it sounds like, you know, um, Gay Sydney is kind of going through a bit of a kind of, you know, um, negative time at the moment when you look at those kind of, you know, cultural kind of, you know, closures. Yes, it is. It, look, Oxford,
3: Oxford Street is really on the downs at the moment. Um, you know, a, a smartphone, why would you go and sit in a cold bar for three or four hours on the chance you could pick up a man and get on your smartphone and you might find within half a, half a kilometre there's, you know, 10 or so people already waiting. So the smartphone has really had a detrimental effect on parts of the social life in Oxford Street. Certainly the... Um, The the sort of economic downturn also had an impact. But I walked up Oxford Street last night after dinner and the pubs suddenly are starting to come back. There's new restaurants starting to open. And I think with Sydney World Pride, um, even though parts of Oxford Street, which are derelict, uh, the City Council gave uh, Sydney World Pride uh, $300,000. I think Monday night a decision to try and beautify Oxford Street, whatever... They might be. My own thoughts on that would uh, cover up all the awful hoardings with a mural. Many aspects of uh, Oxford Street's very flamboyant and interesting queer past, our queer history going right back into the late 19th century.
1: Absolutely. Gary Wotherspoon, it has been an absolute joy to chat with you on 3CR this afternoon and to hear your insights. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, James. 3CR
1: but I do have Austin Fabry Jenkins, the new co-convenor of the Victorian Pride Lobby, on the phone. Austin, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me, James, and also <laughs> thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. No one ever gets it right so first
1: time. <laughs> oh, look, it's really exciting that you've been elected. Congratulations.
4: Oh, thanks so much. I've I've been in the acting position as the co-convenor for probably the last six months and I'm very excited to be kind of the official one now along with my other co-convener Liam so I think we've got a lot of good plans and a really great committee uh, working with us so it's going to be fantastic.
1: And what a combination you and Liam Elphick at the helm.
4: Yeah I think so I think we bring two very different sets of skills. Um, Liam understands policy and legal stuff better than I will ever understand, I don't know how he does it, and I kind of bring that campaigning side because my day job is working in the union movement. So I think it's a great combo.
1: Yeah, and a great political combo- combination, you know, great nows there, uh, great campaigning skills. Uh, what are your policy priorities? What would the lobby like to see happening in the next term of government?
4: Oh, well, I guess our main priority for next year, it's going to be a really exciting time because it'll be the first time in quite a while where we haven't had an election and hopefully we won't all be locked down due to COVID. So the main thing that we'd be looking towards is actually going to be the state budget um, and really making sure that we're working with lots of different queer community organisations. Aside from that, you know, with that budget, it's really about making sure that services are getting properly funded that they're getting put into the right places and that uh, as much funding as possible is staying within our community, so ensuring that community-controlled organisations are are properly funded. We've seen a lot of events and fun things and festivals uh, receive a lot of funding over the last couple of years. It's just really important to make sure kind of the less fun and less romantic stuff is getting funded as well, like healthcare, housing, social services, all those types of things.
1: What about law reform? What are the lobby's law reform priorities for the next term of government?
4: At this stage, in terms of law reform, it's really just continuing on with whatever legislation the next government passes, ensuring that a queer lens is applied. Uh, So, for example, in the last term, we had the affirmative consent legislation uh, passed through, as well as the decriminalisation of sex work. And there's still going to be some significant work to be done on the Justice Working Group, ensuring that queer people and queer experience is represented in reforms such as that. And of course, we've got to ensure that intersex people are having human rights granted to them and are no longer having non-consensual surgeries being performed on their children, which is going to be a major priority, I think, for the whole queer community to really back up the intersex community in that.
1: Absolutely. And I guess you'll be pushing for more visibility around policy, but also funding for more marginalised sections of the LGBTIQ community.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've had a pretty big role in the last couple of years, particularly around talking about police reform um, and the presence of police at Pride. So I personally am very keen to continue that work because we know that the over-policing of uh, certain marginalised communities impacts queer people within those communities more. That's how intersectionality works. And we know that many marginalised queer people, you know, particularly queer people of colour and trans people, currently don't feel safe around the police. So we want to ensure that we're working within government to make Victoria Police practices better and to ensure they're held to account. The other side of that is just today one of our committee members brought up that we really need to be looking at prison reform uh, and services for former incarcerated people and particularly queer people. So I think that is a really interesting space that we could potentially be looking at in the next couple of years.
1: Absolutely. I think that's something we don't hear much about. Uh, what should the government be doing in, in that area? Because it is overlooked.
4: Oh, I mean, uh, personally, I'm an abolitionist. Um, but obviously we want to be making sure that trans people are being put in, if they have to be put into a prison or held in remand, that they're being held in a safe way and to ensure they're being, having their gender identity recognised and have access to healthcare. care. Uh, personally, I like to see prison being the last option for people who are convicted and would like to see more community corrections orders, but... This is something that we haven't kind of worked out the full policy on within the lobby. So it's something that we would want to discuss with specialists as well to make sure we've got a really cohesive message on that.
1: And I guess mental health as well. I mean, the government's building more prisons, you know, creating more prison beds, and there's not enough mental health beds. And often what that means is that mental health is effectively criminalised. People are put in prison when really they need to be in hospital.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And we did see some increases to mental health funding during uh, COVID, which was really great. And I think some of the results that we saw that, you know, actually we were able to keep people's mental health fairly under control during COVID lockdowns and things like that was a result of that increased funding. And it shows that being able to fund services correctly that way does have a good impact across the community, not just with queer communities. And I guess for us in terms of mental health, it's really about, ensuring that a a good proportion of the mental health funding that goes out remains with community-controlled organisations. So Thorn Harbour recently did a fantastic election submission, uh, which basically called for the government to allocate 7 to 10% of all funding towards community-controlled organisations on the basis that 7 to 10% of the population is LGBTIQ. So it's just to ensure that not only are services that we access culturally sensitive and culturally relevant, that actually our community can assist our community in a mutual aid form as well.
1: You mentioned police marching at the Pride March for, for midsummer. Now that's an issue that's been bubbling away for years, um, seems to go in ebbs and flows. There's been a, you know, fairly concerted effort in drips and drabs on this over the last couple of years. Um, the trans Pride March here in Melbourne recently didn't have police marching in uniform. Why is it so hard, uh, for midsummer to kind of resolve this issue? Well,
4: Look, I can understand that there's major differences in the community and I do emphasise and really understand the arguments that I guess, you know, the members of the community who are pro-police put forward, I understand that they feel like having the police there and marching in uniform in pride is a way to both reform the police and also show the community that the police are more safe. So I do understand where they're coming from, but I think overwhelmingly what we're seeing at the moment is that having the police there in uniform currently doesn't make the whole community feel safe to go to Pride. And that is just where it becomes unacceptable to me, because if Pride isn't for every member of our community, then who is it for? Uh, and, you know, my own personal experiences uh, organising Pride marches in other places outside of, uh, I guess, the Melbourne CBD and St Kilda, is that that is a really difficult conversation to have with the police because it is a bit uncomfortable and it is confrontational by nature. And I think people have a lot of difficulty being able to go to someone in power and say, hey, I actually, I don't think you should do this. I don't think you should march with us in uniform. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have and and that's okay. But I think we have to be brave and we have to say it and we have to say it in good faith if we want to, ensure that the police is reforming and becomes a safe government service for LGBTIQ people.
1: Is part of this impasse because Midsummer hasn't made a decision and said, OK, you can march, but not in uniform? I mean, isn't it kind of up to Midsummer as the organisers of the event?
4: Uh, I believe Midsummer have agreed that police can march in uniform. I'm not 100% sure on that one, sorry. Um... I think the impasse really just comes from an ideological difference and a difference in how we feel we can change the community. And I think, you know, that's fine because when you are 10% of the population, you're going to have differences of opinion. And I think that we as a community just need to continue having this debate in good faith with each other. And my personal opinion is that we need to attach metrics uh, to the police to ensure that they're actually improving their relationship with the community before we allow them to march in uniform again.
1: Austin Fabry-Jenkins, the new co-convenor of the Victorian Pride Lobby, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. All right,
4: thanks so much, James. Have a good day.
1: You too. Cheers. kids there with Jailbirds, I am honoured to have the cabaret performer and actor Bradley Storer in the studio.
5: Oh, the honour is all mine. Thank you for having me today. We
1: have spoken so many times via the internet, recorded interviews over the phone, and now finally you're here at 3CR.
5: I know. Finally, the long-awaited conclusion to the trilogy, live and in person. (laughs)
1: You are the dark princeling of Melbourne's cabaret. Yes. You did Dark Prince, which I was fortunate to see yes. at Hair Hole. Oh,
5: yes. I don't think I've, I've actually had the chance to see you since then. So I'd love to hear your opinion in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, well I, hope it, I hope it's good otherwise. <laughs> look, I've got to say what
1: really, really surprised me was, I mean, I knew how good your voice was, but to hear it live took my impression and perception to a different level. Uh, the range of material you sang was quite extraordinary and what jumped yeah. out to me was that you really should be the lead singer of a glam rock
5: band <laughs> oh that would be heavenly yeah that would be wonderful oh i said i did not know even i had did not know i even had that desire till you said it. now i'm just like that- be good. Yeah. Um, But, yes, thank you. I guess thank you so much for coming along. Yes, thank you for the lovely compliments. That was – oh, yeah, that was such a wonderful show to do. And I had a wonderful collaborator, David Butler, uh, a.k.a. uh, cabaret drag provocateur Peppy Schmears. Um, Yeah, that was such a wonderful experience, again, at the hair hole. Um, For anyone who didn't see it, it was just a little – Dark meditation on the last few years we've had and kind of situation we're all in now. And it was, uh, oh, let's see, there was Arcade Fire, there was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, there was, um, that was just in the first five minutes too. Um, let's see, odd uh, Bob Dylan, there was Nick Cave, Camilla Heidke, yeah, great. So, so much repertoire. <laughs> there was quite a range. <laughs> You're always
1: working on something. What's in the pipeline?
5: Oh, gosh, I just came off. You've actually caught me when I've just come off the bag of some things, which has been, I've been, yeah, chock-a-block the last few weeks. It's that way with gigs. It's just like there'll be nothing for months, and then all of mine are crammed into the same three-week period. Um, So I was lucky enough that I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got to go up to regional Victoria for, uh, I performed for a wonderful regional queer organisation called uh, Lion Wangaratta earlier this year. It's part of a fundraiser they were were having for their, uh, for their program and outreach efforts um and they were, I just did a 15 minute set there and they were very lovely and asked me back for a full show which i was very flattered by so yeah i went back to do that yeah about two probably two or three weeks ago now um and it's very but meaningful to me because it's the area that i grew up in so i'm from banal which is just up the road from wangaratta um and then uh david who was in uh, guys as peppy schmears came along as well and uh peppy is also from uh, rural tasmania so and it was uh an addition to doing the show which was wonderful i about some of the material from Dark Prince, but then a lot of some material from my old show Trickster and from stuff that I've done over the years, which was lovely. Some of them I hadn't touched in so long, so it was doing it again. I was just like, oh, this has all changed a lot since I last did it, just internally. I was like, oh, I'm a different person and performer now. So that was wonderful. But um, in addition to all that lovely stuff, it was, um, I had the chance to yeah perform for regional queer people um, and just being able to help because it was a fundraiser for a regional pride hub, which is now... I think officially on the go, uh, uh, but is on the way, which is wonderful. But um, yeah, just an opportunity to go back to where I came from and help to contribute to the space that perhaps wasn't there when I was a young queer person. So, um, yeah, no, so that was lovely. Yeah, what a triumphant return! I know. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, and then the next, uh, the next week after that, I was lucky enough to perform for the uh, Clocktower Cabaret program over in Mooney Ponds, uh, which lo- lovely venue, the Clocktower Centre. Um, I was, uh, I was very lucky because in their program, I was, uh, I was billed above uh, musical theatre star Lucy Dirac during her Morning Melodies show. So I was just like, oh, I finally got billed above Lucy. I'm just like, I'm a career apex. Um, and, and so, but doing the show there, I talked about. <laughs> Because uh, that show had a little bit of a theme Because it was, uh, just in the show I was mentioning Like a lot of the material I was doing um, Some like some of it came from when I was younger Like I uh, did uh, Constant Craving by Katie Lang Because the first time oh, I ever I heard that. that Love, a queer classic And the first time I'd ever heard that Was on Australian Idol <laughs> so It was very funny I told a little bit of a story about that um, And then another set I did was all uh, music That was either written during inspired by or in Europe around the same time as um written during the Weimar period of German history because I do tap myself as a Weimar cabaret performer um do I often do material that's from the Weimar period not often, so I did a entire because it was split into three sets, my entire middle one was all works either. From the Weimar era, or inspired by, or done in the style of Weimar, uh, which was wonderful, and I talked about uh, connections to Weimar performers that I'd been uh, that I'd known in my life, and then the final set I did talk about going back to regional Victoria. <laughs> I actually said in the show, I'm just like, oh no, did this end up being the point of the show? It was going back. I was just I went back to where I started in Triumph. I'm just like, oh God, I hate shows with a point. I always accidentally end up with one. What (laughs) a great (laughs) basis though. I I know. It was very handy. has Um, given
1: you this kind of, you know, wonderful grounding to go into all these eclectic directions. mm -hmm. Why do you love Weimar Cabaret so much?
5: I just, yeah, it is something that's instinctually within me. Um, oh, yes, it's uh, just so wonderful. Um, you can't tell I'm being ironic, but, um, no, no, it's just something in me reaches out to that style because what, uh, off, like even what I found with the Weimar material I did for Clock Tower, one of the songs was called, uh, the Ballad of Paragraph 86. It was written by Brecht and one of his early collabor- collaborators, not Kurt Weill. It was done in the 1920s and it was written at a time. Um, when Germany had just uh, like made abortion illegal, and the song was about a woman going to a doctor begging for. But an abortion because, and the reason, the reasons she lists are, I have no place to live. My husband has no job. We cannot take care of a baby. And the doctor, but just says, Oh, nope, you're gonna, it's just like, well, it's not about what you need. The state needs people to run the machines. We need cannon fodder for the army. So it's like, you're having the baby and it doesn't matter. Uh, which I'm just like, that is still very shockingly relevant. Like, for the exact same reasons in the way that, yeah, but often that uh, but lack of access to a family planning and things like that. Uh, like, it's, but, you know, very, very terrible for like, but dis- impoverished and disadvantaged families, and for families of colour, like to, but unfortunately, have to keep them in cycles of poverty by making sure they have so many children and can't support all of them. Um, so it's like that was written in the 1920s, and yet still 80 years, like 80 to 90 years onwards, it's still incredibly relevant. Um, so yeah, it's like going back, finding those resonances, and just I just like for me personally, also, I think it's just I love a good dark story, which a lot of those those songs are, they have some incredibly dark stories. Uh, For one of them was, yeah, like, for example, I did a Jacques Brel song who was a a French writer, wasn't necessarily a Weimar writer, but a song he wrote called Next, which was, um, a song about a soldier who went to a very young soldier who went to war, and at the time, uh, part of the package was you were given access to sex workers, um, as part of the like army's little, but like, but in an army truck, basically. talks, and it's about him. <laughs> no, it's terrible in here, but it But him slowly losing his mind because he's contracted gonorrhea and it's destroyed his brain. Um, yeah, so a very, very dark story. Incredible song. Um, yeah, yeah, so I just, but I just love that material. I don't know why.
1: Well, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because there's so, many, there's so many kind of points of relevance to today, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of we live in this great cultural city, there's so much diversity, mm-hmm. but we're kind of heading towards this darkness politically, it seems, potentially. Mm-hmm. Mm, certainly yeah. in other countries
5: yeah. where yeah, we and start to slide back towards fascism You know <sighs> Exactly <laughs> here, So yeah. I
1: can really see why your love for Weimar yeah. You know, cabaret Is kind of feeling relevant And gives you a great springboard for other stuff
5: mm-hmm, Indeed Oh, gosh You love the <laughs>
1: stage, don't
5: you? <laughs> oh, I do love the stage In fact, uh, just before I came in today I was doing, oh, I was doing a week-long workshop Doing music theatre repertoire Which is lovely Hadn't had a chance to do that for a while And it's like, oh, I miss doing that Which is a bit more... Oh, but not so, but with my Weimar stuff it can be quite crazy, whereas this one's a little bit more grounded, a little bit more... But yeah, and so I'm just like I just love any opportunity to just get up there and just do stuff. <laughs> it's interesting because when we first
1: spoke, you were really kind of you know I guess transitioning <laughs> into serious theatre, you know, oh, in terms of that's acting, right, yes. you know, you did that great DL Turnbull production, yep, uh, early
5: uh, days, and I just come off the back of doing uh, Creatrix Tiara's uh, work, Queer Lady Magician. Creatrix Tiara does send her love as well. Uh, excuse me, sends their love. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but yeah, now we've. Uh, Post COVID it's now starting to yeah, get back into Yeah, well, the serious dramatic work because I am, if you cannot tell from my voice, a serious dramatic actor. And of course you did sense and sensibility because <laughs> yes, Jane Austen I under did. the belt. That's right. I did that earlier this year, which was a lot of fun. Also and I've got to play a but technical romantic lead and but doing the indented fingers here for people at home um, yes, which was a lovely opportunity as well working with director and writer Shamina Kumar um, yeah that was a wonderful experience and working with uh, yeah a lot of music theatre people as well yeah 3CR In
0: Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture. the lumberjills. Lumberjills. Hello, Hello, and lumberjills. lumberjills and we're, we're from, from
2: canada. canada so you're listening to 3cr 855 am community radio and we just want to say support your local radio station way hey and away
0: we go donkey riding donkey riding way hey and away we go riding on a donkey 3cr radio